Today we have Peter Lyon, if I'm pronouncing your last name, yeah. Lyon, uh, RUF minister. Uh, he's going to bring God's word from Psalm 32. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding who must be curbed with a bit and bridle or it will not stay near. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. God's word. Let us pray. may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, this testimony of David, of your work in his heart as he sinned and confronted his sin and saw it. And we pray that you would speak to us now uh, as we so that we can hear and see that pattern and apply it in our own lives. Uh, we just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello. Thank you for having me back. It is a pleasure to be with you again. I am Peter Lyon. I am the campus minister with Reformed University Fellowship at VCU in Richmond. And uh, second time driving out here, I am still very reliant on the GPS on my phone. And on my way out here, I missed uh, a highway exit, you know, and it immediately recalculates and tells me, you know, you're always, I'm always secretly hoping when I miss something that there's like, oh, there's just this other way that's like a minute slower. But it's, it was the dreaded, get off of the next exit, turn directly around, go back, you fool. What were you doing? I'm like, I was cold. I was distracted. I, I remember when GPSs first came out, you know, the little window mounted ones, little Garmin's and, uh, you know, having having learned to drive in the early 2000s with the, you know, maps and then map quests that you'd print out and all those things. And then you get the, the GPSs and, and they were so like, the, they were like, always oh, recalculating. U-turn. I'm like, I can't just do a U-turn on this street. But they would always, that was always their suggestion if you made a mistake. U-turn, just turn right around. And it used to get me so upset. I, I don't know why I had this like visceral reaction to it. I'm like, no, I can figure this out. I just want to keep going. Let's, let's tack back and forth. We'll, we'll work it out. 
didn't want to admit that I just made the worst, like most opposite direction mistake that I could. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about U-turns. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, repentance. And I think we're also going to talk about why even something as, as minor as like the GPS, the machine telling you you're wrong is hard on us. Uh, this is a beautiful psalm. Uh, I think it's a popular psalm to be read for, for good reason. It, it resonates with us. It is beautiful. Uh, and, and as we dive into it today, it is easy when we talk about grace and repentance to talk about theoretical grace or theoretical repentance, maybe grace for other people, maybe repentance we might need to do in the future. And I would encourage you, as I'm reading this, as I'm going through this, I am going to gird my heart for the things I need to repent of today. And I would encourage you to do that, do the same. Um, and I think that you will find great joy in it. Hence uh, how I titled the sermon, uh, Rejoicing in God's Grace. So let me pray and let's dive in here. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you that you are good. I thank you that we can return to you, that we can turn back to you, uh, not with fear, not with fear, not with self-loathing, but with uh, rejoicing that we are received, our sin is covered, and that we are loved deeply by you. Lord, help us to rejoice in the goodness of your grace and learn to love your law and your will for us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna just kind of work through the psalm uh, in order. I know it's a revolutionary way of doing this. Uh, so let's just start with these first couple verses. Uh, read them again for you. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I like that right off the bat, uh, for, for just emphasis, for completeness, the psalmist uses three different words here to talk about what we're talking about. It's like, blessed one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You know, well, you might not use all those words on a regular basis, but you might think, you know, uh, the different ways in which we are uh, in violation of what is good. Maybe it's rebelliousness. Maybe it's selfishness. Maybe covetousness. You know, you can put your own, the full breadth of our failure is in these two verses. Those, trans those things you do kind of thoughtlessly, those things you do intentionally, kind of that just resting evil in your heart. We need to face the facts. These things exist. But right off the bat, we hear that they are forgiven. I was talking with some, somebody uh, about the church I grew up in. They love, uh, there's a guy, Jack Miller, who was the preacher there, and he had a favorite kind of expression he used to say. He said, cheer up. You're far worse than you think you are. But God's grace is far bigger than you can ever imagine. We start this psalm with this idea. Rejoice. Those things that you've done, maybe that you've left undone. Oh, I loved our confession of sin today. Just like the people that you would have out of your life. You know, the things we don't even think of as sin. Those things that, that come from the same place in our heart as murder. Even that, those are covered. 
You are blessed. Rejoice. I don't know about you guys. Uh, when, I, when I am face-to-face with my need to repent, my need to say sorry, my need to stop doing something I was doing, my visceral reaction is, is not rejoicing. My sort of instant reaction is not like, I am blessed. Uh, I think our, those reactions tend to reveal uh, our heart's real feelings. Maybe it's towards the person, you know, a very specific person we need to repent to, or, or maybe it is towards God. It kind of reveals in this moment those little, you, you can catch those little snapshots, those half seconds uh, of emotion in your heart. It reveals something very honest, doesn't it? Uh, I think about this as a father. Um, you know, I almost get, the, I almost get the, the truest idea of how my children think of me of when they've hurt themselves doing something I've told them not to do. You know, especially my four-year-old daughter who is a habitual line stepper. Uh, just the, the boundaries are made to just be constantly leaned upon. You know, and when she's climbing over the couch, you know, to get to what she calls her hidey hole, and she fall, which I've told her like every day of her entire life to stop doing, and she falls and she hits her head. How does she respond in that moment? Does she hide her pain from me because she is more afraid of my rebuke? Or does she run to me because she needs her dad? I'm terrified of a moment when she hides it from me. I think that would be, that would, that would be a cause for me to then go and repent. I'm terrified of seeing that moment. And I think that that's worth, you know, as, as we prepare to go further in the psalm, it's worth us thinking about when we are faced with the consequences of our sin. You know, often the consequences of our sin are meted out on other people. That's the un- injustice of sin. We often bear the consequences of other people's sin. Evil is evil. It doesn't distribute its effects fairly. But when we feel the consequences of our sin, where do we run to? Where is the source of our security? Because that brings us to the second part of this psalm. The the meditation that I think is, is just so deeply beautiful. I think this is the part that really resonates. Starting in verse 3, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely, The rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The contrast, the before and the after of repentance here is beautiful. In the midst of, Of my sin, I am wasting away. I'm becoming like nothing. I'm becoming, you know, there's an old Hebrew curse to be made light. 
to be sort of uh, easily blown away, to be inconsequential. And then the psalmist repents. He recognizes that he cannot cover his own sin. He is unable to do so. It's an important phrase. It's a weird, we wouldn't say that. Like we don't use that term a lot, but it's, it's important in the psalm. He can't cover it. Maybe we think of that with like a tab. Like I can't cover that. <laughs> I can't cover that bill. <laughs> he can't cover this. But after his repentance, what does he find? He finds the safety and security where the high waters cannot reach him. And it's worth sitting here. What is the difference that repentance brings? It is not the absence of trouble. I think that's an important thing. I think we have, we have digested a very transactional relationship. It's a very pagan idea of God that I do things and I get things. Okay, you want my repentance and I will get, I'll do this thing that you want and I will get comfort and I will get ease. But the contrast of the security is not that. Look in the second part of the psalm. The waters are rising and are out there. The troubles exist in this fallen and broken world in which we live. But after the psalmist returns to God, he returns to the strength and the protection of God. That even though the troubles swirl around, they do not overwhelm him. On his own, he is a light thing, easily crushed. Returning to God, he is strong. He is safe. He is secure in God's strength. Kind of makes me think about uh, the, the GPS analogy from my introduction. I think one of the one of the uh, one of the brilliant things they added to those GPSs is the little gray line that tells you how much. For, like it's like, oh, I don't want to take a U-turn. Okay, well, going straight to twenty-three additional minutes. It's like, okay, let's make a U-turn. Sometimes we need to be made aware of the consequences. Sometimes the consequences are what wake us up to the reality of our need. You know, when I was young, and I was navigating the roads, I thought I was wiser and smarter and more clever than my printed out MapQuest directions or my early GPS, the big blocky thing. And it's only through getting lost again and again that I've learned the humility of the U-turn. hard learning. It's in those returning, it's in that finding security, it's in seeing the consequences and our own failures of being honest with them. Honest with our own inability to navigate this fallen and broken world recognizing as the psalmist does that on my own, I am a light and easily broken thing. It is in experiencing that that we 
realize the goodness of God's law. There's parallels in this psalm. You can, uh, somebody once told me Psalms 1 and 2 are a great, you know, a great key to reading the rest of the psalms. And in Psalm 1, we have, the, uh, we have a very similar kind of counterpoint put together. The wicked are like chaff, like the leftover husks of grain that are easily blown away. The person who listens to God, who receives his law, is like a tree planted by the water who is fed in all seasons, who grows and bears fruit and is strong. There's security, there is safety, there is fruitfulness and goodness in what God has for us. The joy of repentance is returning to what is good. The joy of repentance is, is, not, that, is not that there is like this immediate reward system, you know, that was a problem that Israel kept struggling with. If you look throughout all the Old Testament, God is constantly reminding them, I don't actually delight in the sacrifice of animals. Saul has to be told this in 1 Samuel. It's like, you know what I like more than sacrifice? Obedience. Micah 6, in which we have the famous Micah, you know, passage, what the Lord loves. What precedes it is what, like, you could sacrifice to me rivers of oil, herds of cattle, what I'd love is for you to love the things I love. Justice, mercy, humility. Repentance. Repentance is the means by which we learn that what God tells us is good is good. When we turn away from the path that we were taking and we return. The, the, often the literal translation of repent in, in Hebrew is to turn back. Because the, the question that's gonna motivate the joy that we find in God's grace is where is goodness and blessing found? And that's where we get to this last part of the psalm. The psalmist switches into the voice of God and it says in verse eight, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Whose will is for our good? Are we the best? Am I the best at making myself happy and joyful? I can tell you working on a college campus, that is the central question I deal with a lot. Our core, our, the fruit of hundreds of years uh, of thought is, is now this idea that I am the determiner of my own happiness, will, fate. My greatest joy resides in actualizing my true self. If that sounds like meaningless jargon to you, it is actually far worse than that. 
But to a certain extent, I assure you, we swim in the sea. We take this in. We believe, I, if I could just do what I wanted to do, I would be happy. If I had the money, if I was comfortable, if I had the house, if I just had this thing, if I just had my way at work, if I just had this promotion, oh, I would be happy. I feel like this is where repentance is so fruitful for our life if we are willing to see it. Those times where we are forced by our circumstances to turn back, these are opportunities where we see, yes, you did exactly what you willed and what was the result? Make a U-turn, turn back. You've caused yourself harm. You've caused those you love harm. You know, When I, when I read this, I am very much a city boy. I, I grew up in Philadelphia. I am not much for horses and mules. I might be speaking a cross-cultural guy. I don't know. But I'm a, I am a lover of, of large dogs. I had a golden retriever for 12 years who I loved. He was a great dog. His name was Mac. Mac's biggest problem, though, like all golden retrievers, was just his unbridled enthusiasm. He loved too deeply too passionately. And so while he was a very obedient dog, walking Mac was always difficult. 85 pounds of unbridled enthusiasm, low to the ground. It's a lot to deal with. Eventually we had to get him one of those leashes that just goes over his nose so you could just pull him. You know, it's like like a bridle. It's like not every sniff on the block is the most important. When we moved back into Richmond with him, and it was just like the, the quantity of smells like multiplied by a factor of 10, it was just like, all right, buddy, they can't all be that important. <laughs> Had to be led by the nose. He was so sure that each stop, each thing, each person was all that he ever wanted. <laughs> but what he needed was a long exercise. Buddy, there's more than this this one tree right outside our house. I want to take you through the whole neighborhood. There's more that I have to show you. I knew better than him what was for his good. And so I was willing to put that gentle leader on and take him. And I think that there is even some graciousness in this. Like, don't be like the horse and the mule. But I guess better to be led bit by bit by God, repentance through repentance, step by step, than to just be the wicked, than to just release yourself from the bounds of the bridle and run into your own emptiness. But better still is the one who trusts in God's goodness. Let the training of this guide us into recognition that what God wants for us is good. You know, I'll use a one more driving metaphor. When we are, when you're first learning to drive, uh, there's sort of this, you know, oh, I've watched my parents drive their entire life. You know, the wheel goes like this, the pedal goes like this. I get it. 
And you have to learn how sensitive your particular car is, which car you're driving, the gas, the brake, like, you know, some brake pedals feel like rocks, you know, some you got to really like my old, old element, you got to jam the thing all the way to the floor. And you got to learn those things. And you're in the car with somebody who's a young driver, like the, the gas and the brake is like that. And they auto correct themselves, you know, you're like, oh, I need to oh, overturn left, need to turn right. And we have a certain amount of patience for them. They are learning. But our hope for them, our hope and our goal is not the constant autocorrection of, oh, accelerated, did that break back? Is to have the ability to find the road. How does repentance help us? It is not pleasant to be in the car with a teenager as they jerk back and forth with the wheel or they accelerate and then hit the brakes. But I want them to hit the brakes. If it's a 35 zone, they don't need to be going 55. Repentance helps us like, okay, I need to hear that. I need to do that. It might feel fits and starts at first. But if we trust in God's love for us, if we trust that we are blessed in this, if we have peace and repentance, like the psalmist tells us to have, it's a blessed thing to return to the Lord and to return to what he says is good. And so as we look at this as a whole, as we see this as a whole, you know, I'm encouraged in the conclusion of this, do we see repentance in our own lives, in the specific situations we, we need to repent as a movement from sorrow to joy? This is a sorrowful thing I'm doing. I want to return to joy. I think we struggle so much with humility sometimes that we can't grasp that fact. Repentance is a movement from sorrow to joy. But to believe that we need, we need something that the psalmist almost takes for granted in this psalm. That our sin is covered. We need to be as confident as the psalmist that, yes, I return and my sin is covered. That's the unspoken thing that's been hovering over this this whole time. Yes, okay, that's great to repent until they hold it over me, until they always bring it up. Do we view God as that vindictive family member who always remembers every one of our failures and can't wait to bring them up? Or do we... Or do we, like the psalmist, see God as our refuge and our joy, who's like, get rid of that sorrowful life and take on this life of joy. I'm so pleased that you are choosing to do well. I was was worried and I wanted you to return. Like the father, when Jesus tells us the story of the prodigal son, he wants us to believe him that God eagerly awaits our return. We need to eagerly believe that returning to God is a path to joy and deliverance. And the only way that that will be true is if we believe in the work of Jesus Christ. The way this psalm reaches its fruition, written a thousand years before the life of Christ, is in Jesus. How is that sin covered? It is not by the blood of animals or the sacrifice of grain and oil. 
It is through the work of Christ Jesus, God made flesh who was willing to live and die, who bore our sins on the cross and lives. In the death and resurrection of Christ, we see that our sins are really dead and that we can really live. We have seen in the person of Jesus the model of perfect obedience to God. And contrary to the voices in our head that tell us that that is not desirable or unbearable, what we see in the person of Jesus, in the stories of the gospel, is a man who radiated gentleness, kindness, peace, joy, patience, all that fruit of the spirit we hear about later, we see it lived and it beautiful. Don't take for granted the parts of the gospel that just talk about how compelling a person Jesus Christ was to be around. The model of perfect obedience was beautiful. And if we need evidence that God cares, not just broadly about the movement of, of history, but about us, what better evidence could you find than Christ Jesus, who stops on the way to see a leper reaching out for him and embraces him, who, who on the way with a crowd to, to bring a girl back for the dead stops for the untouchable woman who briefly touches the hem of his garment. Who, while he can feed the 5,000, is concerned with the individual woman at the well who no one else will speak to. I encourage you, if you are struggling to bring yourself to repentance, take some time with the Gospels. Here's my only application. Spend some time with Jesus. I promise you, he's more beautiful than you remember. His grace is bigger than you recall. If the Trinity, if God, if all that is too big for you to wrap your head around, the person of Jesus is God made translatable that you can see, that you can understand, that you, that we are all now provided with this lived proof that we can trust in the joy and effectiveness of God's grace. Amen. Amen. Let's, let's go to him in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that in your son you have demonstrated that what David has, has told us in his psalm is true, that our sins are forgiven, our transgressions are covered, our, and the iniquities that we have committed. Lord, you can make right that we are received back with the warm embrace of a father, that you love us dearly, that in the storms of this life, Lord, you will secure us. Nothing can snatch us from your hand, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would trust in that, that we would return often to see your son and to trust in him.
and his name we pray. Amen.